Oh, little Sputnik, flying high, with maiden Moscow beep. You tell the world it's a commie sky, and Uncle Sam's asleep. You say on fairway, and on rough, the Kremlin knows it all, and we hope our golfer knows enough to get us on the ball. We had a pretty large bang associated with the um, caution and warning now. As we have an apparent serious oxygen leak. listener and welcome to Failure to Launch, the space history podcast where we take you through every mistake, failure and explosion that made modern space exploration possible. My name is Quinn and I'm joined by my friends Chris and a poltergeist that may imitate Chris. And today we're talking about Project Vanguard, America's failed answer to Sputnik. So have you guys ever heard of Project Vanguard? No. On a very basic level, yes, but not too in depth. You don't have to worry because like most people haven't. I hadn't before doing research for this because this is from a time that wasn't too proud for the United States. And I figured since we've spent like so far four ish episodes talking about the earliest Soviet satellite launches like Sputnik one and two, why not do the same for America? Oh, it's going to be amazing. And because this is one of those examples that I think really comes back like to the main idea of this show, like looking back at events that aren't necessarily hidden or covered up, but just there's they're not talked about. They're not taught. If you go looking for this, you can find Wikipedia pages on this. You can find all of the info I'm going to talk about pretty easily. And it's really fun stuff. But despite all of that, and despite the pivotal role it played in space history, Vanguard is basically unknown in the public and even the space industry itself. Also, for this episode, the main source I'll be using is the book Red Moon Rising by uh, Matthew Brzezinski. Uh, this is also the same one I've used for uh, Sputniks 1 and 2 because it covers both sides of the Cold War, like just as the space race is kicking off. It's great. I highly recommend it. And it gives some good insight into the like politics and context of all of these events. For some of the more technical details, I'll be citing the report Vanguard A History, which was published by NASA as part of their historical series. What they tend to do is they write like a big postmortem report for every space project they do. They're, they're a little dry, but they do have some incredible info in there. Anyway, uh, both of these books will be listed in the show notes. America's competing rockets. The first thing to note right off the bat, if you're going to understand the American response to Sputnik, you need to understand that America did not have one rocket program like the Soviets did. They actually had three. The U.S. Army, Navy and Air Force all set up their own rocket programs and competed with each other over who should get the prize of being responsible for ballistic missiles. It's just like it's sibling rivalry stuff. It happens in the militaries all the time. It happens in the Canadian militaries. They just they want all the toys, so they compete over who gets to have them. I guess who can microwave the earth the fastest? <laughs> uh, yeah, who, who gets to be the favorite? Who does who does the pre- daddy president love more? Who gets to be the one who's responsible for lighting the atmosphere on fire? (laughs) 
Also, if anyone has like a really weird hate boner for the Air Force, you know, they're just immediately going to start shelling for the rocket core. And what they did in arguing over who would get these missiles is they basically came up with like philosophical arguments for where rockets belonged. The army argued that rockets were a natural extension of artillery and so should go to them. Like it's just uh, an artillery shell with a rocket motor hooked on the end. The Air Force believed that missiles were like flying delivery systems for weapons, like basically unmanned bombers. Uh, So they wanted American missiles assigned to the Strategic Air Command, the same command as America's new B-52 bombers. The U.S. Navy also got involved, but they didn't really have an argument. They just wanted their own missiles, so they started their own program. Specifically, all of these branches were competing for ownership of the new field of what's called IRBMs and ICBMs. Do you guys know what the, I I mean, ICBMs, a lot of people know what those are. (laughs) Uh, have yes. you ever heard of IRBMs before? Yeah, intermediate range. Right. Sorry for immediately just stepping over me to shout yeah. the answer. Yeah. You're shouting, <laughs> stepping over me who was just going to say no. A simple no would suffice. So for the audience and for uh, primary Chris, Chris Alpha. I see I'll always be the, uh, the least favorite child. Your, your established bit is being different kinds of Chris. You're the poltergeist this time. The, ver- the variant Chris. In D&D parlance. For uh, Chris Prime and the audience, to make this make a bit more sense, I'm going to give a quick primer on ballistic missiles. So a ballistic missile is basically any missile that follows a ballistic arc. That means, you know, like if you throw a ball in the air, it follows a ballistic arc. This means that instead of using lift to fly in a straight line the way a cruise missile does, their engines boost them high into the atmosphere or even into space where they follow a long, lazy path towards their targets basically like a massive artillery shell. The benefit of ballistic missiles is that they spend most of their flight times either in space or in the upper atmosphere where there's not a lot of drag to slow them down. This means they can travel much further than most cruise missiles, and they travel a lot faster. Now, ballistic missiles are broken up into categories based on their ranges. There's also like subcategories based on whether you're launching from like submarines or mobile launchers or bombers, but for now I'll just focus on range and not make things too complicated. You've got SRBMs, MRBMs, IRBMs, and ICBMs. SRBMs or short range goes out to 1,000 kilometers. MRBMs or medium range goes out to 3,500 kilometers. IRBMs or intermediate range goes out to 55 kilometers. And ICBMs intercontinental is anything further than 5,500 kilometers. So like the, the German V2, for example, the first ballistic missile had a range of around 300 kilometers. So it was an SRBM. And then, yeah, they, they've also got like some umbrella terms where SRBMs and MRBMs get like lumped together into theater ballistic missiles and IRBMs and ICBMs are long range ballistic. Mi- it gets messy. It gets very, very yeah. messy, very quick. Um, and then don't even talk about anything that's launched outside of an air uh, land based platform. It just gets yeah, into a it's, nightmare. It's just like it, it's it's ridiculous. It's just like who made this? The Bureau of Ordnance? <laughs> Listen, the Bjord is never to be trusted with anything because there's a good chance that he fails and, you know, suddenly Dakota, both Dakotas just become fallout planes. Oh, yes, our pressure sensor is accurate. Pop. Anyway, back in the early 50s, the branches of the U.S. military were competing over who could own IRBMs and ICBMs. So the Army already had a ballistic missile, uh, an SRBM called the Redstone, and their proposal was to modify it into an IRBM they called Jupiter. The Air Force didn't have any earlier missiles, and they made a clean sheet design called the Thor. And the Navy, uh, they planned on developing their Viking sounding rockets into true IRBMs. 
the army and the navy their plan is to use off the shelf like designs they already have where the air force just plans to start uh start from scratch now the reason they were competing is actually pretty simple rockets are expensive and eisenhower's government did not want to waste money like this is a general rule like no one no government ever wants to waste money but the fighting was especially uh, fierce back then because I, the Eisenhower government was in a cost-cutting frenzy in 1956. I need to make this clear. After the Korean War, defense ate up more than half of the total U.S. budget. <laughs> and this got worse. To even get elected, Ike had to pander to hawkish voters and approve a massive $7.5 billion to add around 600 B-52s to America's already massive bomber fleet. Wait, 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 wait. How many? 600 uh, over the course of like five years. Okay. Still, yeah. Christ. It's, a lo- it's still a lot. It's still a lot of B-52s. And this is considering that like, like we talked about with the Sputnik episodes, they already had literal thousands of bombers. The B-52s were upgrades of bombers. Uh, I think like the B-36s. Uh, the ones that had both prop props and jets on them. I think the 52 is an innate platform, but either way, the design lineage just goes far back enough to, ah, uh, yes, a big subsonic. It goes slow. It go far. And the and at the time, like the B-52 was like a quantum leap. Until then, they needed to have bomber bases all around Europe, Japan, Turkey. Uh, with the B-52s, they could bomb the Soviet Union from the comfort of America. Now, in fairness, Ike did not want to do any of this. He was basically bullied by the public, the Democrats, and his own party. To burn defense demo dollars. Yeah. Wasn't he the one that warned us about yes. the, the perils of the, the military-industrial complex? And how do you think he learned that lesson? First-hand experience. <laughs> yeah, this is he's the dude who, like, as he leaves office, he makes that quote, like, do not listen to the military-industrial complex. Because they he want listened money. to the military industrial complex. In the councils of government, we must car- guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military industrial complex. They want money. <laughs> they will get their money. Don't give it to them. And meanwhile, here, Raytheon, come here. We have some more fun. Yes. <laughs> No, this is this. Yeah, it was maybe like also like an abusive relationship of them just like. What, just the American public getting blasted about the face of the cudgel of guys, Masoviets, but communists, my uh, 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 stencil and next threat here. As we'll also as we'll talk about with this episode, it was also kind of like I want to say control a concern trolling. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but like the defense industry would go to the media, would go to the public and say, like, the Soviets sure seem powerful. It, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just like a defense contractor. What do I know? But it sure looks like we're falling behind. Back up. Are you saying that a private business would stoke up concern for its product <laughs> and then ask for someone to buy product? No, Yeah, you create you create the need and then you give a call to action. It's business. <laughs> that's never happened. What are you talking about? <laughs> that hurts. Now, despite being a general, Ike wanted to cut the defense budget and free up money for infrastructure in line with what he called like the great equation. So like his great equation, uh, sometimes it's called the grand equation, was basically he wanted to find the number. He had economists try and find the number where America could keep up its same deterrent that it had while like cutting either making the art, the military more efficient and more lean or just like cutting extra measures that it didn't need and then using that money on like infrastructure. There's a great quote. I don't have it here where Eisenhower is talking about the cost of one B-52 and he's like laying it out where it's like, 
cost of one B-52 is two schools, three hospitals, or like 50 miles of highway. And he's just saying, like, we like we don't need to get rid of all of the bombers. If we get rid of like 10 of them, that's still a huge amount that we can spend on like roads and shit. And that's the thing. You can create a more industrious, healthier people who, in the case of a threat, will be able to ramp up a far faster, much harder and maintain or even just like pressure. Like, and also, if you, if you invest in education and healthcare, then people live longer, healthier. They they make more money. They pay more taxes. Are like, you saying the taxpayer will live longer? What do you, what, what kind of yeah, heresy it's, is it's, this? It's like yeah. So it's basically, if you want a, if you want an economic reason, social spending pays off. It produces more than it costs in the long term. No missile budget go burr. <laughs> okay, we're actually just about to talk about that because very small soapbox here. And that magic number, funny enough, is getting smaller every day because have you ever heard of a term known as commercial off the shelf? Oh, dude, we're going to talk about so much COTS today. Thank you. Your specialist military software doesn't mean dick when cool. I'm going to go walk to the manufacturer of, I don't know, your laptop CPU and go, can I get a couple thousand of those? They're going to get moist. I'm going to buy it for probably two times the cost because they see DOD dollars in the eyes. Infinite money. We're going to talk about that, too. Oh, God, thank you. <laughs> this is yeah, like all the things you're talking about this. This has never changed. This has been the history of military procurement ever since, like, someone set up a blacksmith shop. The problem, it became more public and that makes me happy. <laughs> yes. And, and as we'll see. Whenever it comes to fancy projects that don't actually add to America's deterrent capabilities, rockets are pretty much like right at the top of that list. (laughs) So they were on the chopping block and Ike had the perfect man for this job, his defense secretary, Charles E. Wilson, otherwise known as Engine Charlie. I you want I I want that nickname. He rules. He does rule. That nickname is so fucking good. And are we going to find out how he got that name? We are going to find out how we got that how he got that nickname right now. So Engine Charlie, the way he got the nickname was he was the head of General Motors during World War II and uh, for a little while oh, earlier. I see. Where he had turned the company into an industrial juggernaut and earned a reputation for extreme efficiency. Quote He had pioneered the monthly car payment plans that made financing the preferred method of purchasing automobiles, and he had tamed the unions by negotiating productivity and cost-of-living escalator clauses that ensured labor peace for decades. Wilson's skillful planning and execution had made General Motors the biggest company in the world, and he himself had come to personify the new class of American executives democratizing boardrooms across the country. Yeah, so like he's very good at his job. He he like managed General Motors through World War Two, like churning out so much equipment. And as soon as World War Two is over, he like switches their assembly lines into like a car in every driveway was the kind of idea back then in the 50s. Which is where financing comes in, which is honestly a stroke of genius for them and a sore point for many today. And I was kind of surprised when doing my research on him, like like it says there, He worked with unions like he was very proactive about working with unions and realizing like, oh, if I want to keep these factories running, it's in my interest to, like, make the workers happy. I mean, the original concept of a union was a worker is paid his due (laughs) and to keep. And that's the core concept, not making statements nowadays, but originally. 
purpose. And yeah, like I, I don't know how much of that was him actually like ideologically liking any of that or just being pragmatic and realizing like, hey, if I keep these people happy, they won't strike. Yeah. Results the same, by the way. Like CEOs don't need to like it as long as they, they do it anyway. But uh, a happy worker is a more productive worker. <laughs> yes. Now, he was also incredibly unpopular in the U.S. government. Uh, when he took the job in 1953, he refused to give up his 2.5 million in GM shares. Like, and that's back then money. Oh, he argued that he didn't need to give up his shares because by becoming defense secretary, he was already taking a massive pay cut. There's there's a great quote where, like, unfortunately, in history, it went down kind of weird. Like he was basically asked if that was a conflict of interest, him keeping these shares. And he responded along the lines of, well, you know, I always thought whatever is good for GM is good for the country. So I can't see an opportunity where that would be bad. Mm. And in, in complete fairness to him, that is not what he meant. What he meant was, if I do good for the country, it will be good for G, uh, GM. What it came out sounding like is the one before the other. Exactly. Yeah, it's what doing good for GM comes first. Even if this was misinterpreted, it did not make him popular. Uh, the history books say he had a habit of speaking his mind, which actually means he constantly insulted anything and everyone. To him, Congress was a dunghill. Democrats were kennel dogs and the National Guard was an outfit full of draft dodgers and cowards that needed to be disbanded. I God bless you. Uh, hold on just a second. He also famously thought that science was a waste of time since it was pointless to, quote, worry about what makes the grass green or why fried potatoes turn brown. This sucks. <laughs> yeah, he's just like, like, what, you want to do science? French fries go burr. What the fuck do you care? They bubble and taste crunchy. I, um, listen, when I look at the grass, I don't wonder why. <laughs> like someone tried to explain to him what chlorophyll is and he just fired them on the spot. That is the most on brand I have heard in a while. I'm just thinking he's like a Jonah Jameson persona. Of, he does kind of, of, of have that like, production. He like doesn't give a shit about anything but business. That's all he understands. Yeah. And, and they like I said, the history books have that like they diplomatically say like, oh, he speaks his mind. But it's really just like him being an unpleasant asshole to everybody. <laughs> Ah, yes, yeah, so let's get through the diplomacy into the real heart of the matter. And the dude will just start firing off at whoever's in his vicinity. Oh, he doesn't just start firing off. He starts firing um, because and you can see like with him hating science, you can see how rocket scientists of the Army, Air Force and Navy would be pretty worried. In the early 50s, Ike set engine Charlie loose on the military, a lot like how I imagine you'd set an attack dog loose on a toddler. I was going to say, I think that is the most, from what I've heard so far about this gentleman, setting loose is the most accurate way to say the dude just takes him off the leash and goes sick him and like lets him loose in the Pentagon. Courageous Pitbull swims five miles out the sea to bite drowning child. Yes. No, there's a, there's another dude. Uh, it's a little bit off in the weeds, but going by the name of Jack Welch, also known as Neutron Jack, because of how uh, compact he made GE at some points. <laughs> GE also makes an appearance today. Yeah, no, he was known. He was well known for firing a shitload of people <laughs> when they, they needed them just a bit. But hey, profit margin yeah. go burr. Quote, the president stuck by his outspoken defense chief because military spending was out of control and Engine Charlie, for all his lack of tact, was a ruthless cost cutter. 
In his field, he is a competent man, Eisenhower wrote in his diary shortly after appointing Wilson. Engine Charlie reciprocated by firing 40,000 Pentagon employees in his first few weeks on the job. And by 1956, he had slashed 11 billion from bloated defense budgets. What is this, like the draft, but shittier? He is effective. (laughs) Yeah, it's the draft, but shittier. Oh, what month were you born in? I'm sorry. You're and like I, I I can't super complain or like hate him too much because yeah like like the military any military is bloated as hell. Engine Charlie had a remit that he wasn't actually meant to like hurt the military. He wasn't meant to like hurt any capability. He was just meant to cut the extra stuff. I was just say at the same time think about probably the you know forty people in that cloud that had basically the Excel spreadsheet that could have solved all the problems. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because while there's there's such a thing as collateral damage, <laughs> he's going through the military at this time like a hot knife through butter. And one of the first things on the chopping blocks was missiles. I'll give you I'll give you some quick numbers for context. In 1954, the U.S. government allotted only 14 million towards rocket development across all of the branches. Then in 1955, news started coming out that the Soviets were making fast progress in their rocket programs, which was true. And because of that, around the same time, a report by James Killian, the head of MIT, came out warning that unless the U.S. made immediate changes in investments, they'd fall permanently behind the Soviets. So like what would ha- like, like what happened a lot, the, the Killian report raised alarm enough that Eisenhower reluctantly boosted rocket spending to $550 million, uh, which later became $1.2 billion in 1956. However, that seems like a lot. This is still nothing compared to the amount that bombers are getting. It almost sounds like this weird continuation of the thought the bomber always gets through. That 1.2 billion represented like less than 1% of the U.S. military budget. And at the same time, the lion's share, like 46% went to the Air Force and Strategic Air Command. Like of every dollar spent on the military, almost half went to the Air Force at this time, which and because Engine Charlie, like, he was specifically banned from touching the Air Force and the bombers. So most of his cuts were focused on the Army and the Navy. Just out of necessity, trust me, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> like, you, you know who the favorite child is. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if he was a little loose on the Air Force, you would have heard some screaming even all the way up in Canada. At this point, uh, the rocket budget is around $1.2 billion. One of the first things he did after Eisenhower got a- elected for his second term was Charlie slashed 200 million from the Pentagon's rocket budget. Then he banned any new rocket projects in the country, military or not, which you might notice is actually kind of outside of his remit, but he still did it. But he also he also didn't stop there. See, what made Engine Charlie such an effective cost cutter is that he didn't just do like big picture budget changes. He got into the weeds and micromanaged. Oh, Christ. Here we go. The next thing he did was ban overtime at any of the existing projects and demand they fire any non-essential contractors. He also had a habit of just showing up at military bases to inspect them for anything he could cut. In one example, he was sent to ABMA, which is the uh, the Army Ballistic Missile. So, um, oh, that's my cat. That's my cat. You should just if she interrupts you, just keep talking. It's part of the episode. It is part of the episode. Um. You need to have a picture of Paisley just show up whenever she meets. Oh yeah, I should. <laughs> oh my god, Halloween! I'll dress her up like Felis Felicet. Oh no! <laughs> yes, you want it's to gonna cause happen. Emo- Do you want to cause me <laughs> emotional damage? I'm gonna cosplay my cat as one that got killed for science. 
That's not too bad. One of my favorite podcasts, uh, the host's dog is named Laika. So uh, I see. Anyway, yeah. So so like I was saying, Charlie will just show up at your work one day and just like cut random things and just start swinging. Yeah. And not even like big picture. Like in one example, he was set to visit ABMA, the Army's rocket program out in Huntsville. And because the Secretary of Defense is about to visit and it's a big deal, all of the officers on base, like they try and tidy up as much as possible. They put new paint on the walls. They make sure the guest houses are nice and presentable and that sort of thing. Little did they know this was Charlie's trigger and a huge mistake. Ah, uh, yes. Why'd you spend so much money? Quote, it was not until the delegation returned to the renovated guest house that Engine Charlie grew genuinely animated. Uh, Mr. Wilson started to ask some odd questions, uh, General Metaris recalled. What did it cost to paint those logs so they would look so pretty? The defense secretary wanted to know. He then began asking all sorts of questions about the cost of the quarters, how much money we had put into them, and so on. And then as soon as he got back to the Pentagon, he sicked an army of accountants on ABMA, forcing them to delay their rockets and spend months justifying like every little paint purchase they made. They, they had to explain why they even had the guest house and whether it would be cheaper to have a guest house versus hotels. They thought they were going to show him their cool rocket progress. And instead, Wait. he's just like, is that a number two pencil? Who told you you could have those? I one second. What was his last name? Charlie Wilson. Wait a second. Is this the same Charlie Wilson that kind of had a little bit of a time in Afghanistan? Uh, I, OK, I mean, it depends. He died in 61. So that's probably not it then. This is. Yeah. Yeah, this isn't the same Charlie. Sorry, I was I thought we we're going to have some fantastic overlap with the, uh, the war in Afghanistan. Oh, God. Because uh, I... remember, that was also Charlie Wilson. OK, so I was actually just um, I hadn't looked through Wikipedia because I had better sources, but like I looked through it quickly to see what you were talking about. And the one of the first things that jumped out to me is there's a paragraph called human experimentation. <laughs> I was immediately I was immediately just like, no, no, no. I went to check and it says um, while serving as secretary of defense, Wilson enacted stronger rules against human medical experimentation. Wow. There we go. Yeah. But no, sorry, I just uh the other that that other podcast watched that episode not that long ago and it uh it suddenly clicked wait a second charles a u.s government official and we all know what those people sometimes do so like yeah with all of this with like engine charlie running amok and like firing people left right and center you can understand why the army navy and air force are like they're terrified of this dude yeah, the dude is basically a fucking pitbull loud loose on any DOD spending. <laughs> yeah. Even if their project wins the contest and gets the green light, there's no guarantee Engine Charlie won't just chop them down to a skeleton staff with like no funding anyway, because he made it very clear he didn't want any rocket programs and he would only tolerate one of them because his boss explicitly told him to. And now the best part about that is yeah. It kills the program skeleton crew. Why are you yeah. delivering entire program axed rinse repeat <laughs> ad nauseum? Yeah, like as far as Engine Charlie saw it, rockets were only good for throwing nukes and America already had thousands of bombers that could do the same thing better and cheaper, which like to be fair is kind of true. Like, but that's the thing with prototype techs. They're never as good as the established option. The only the only shitty part is accuracy. Otherwise, how are you going to, you know, intercept something going that fast with tech at yeah. that time? In fairness, at the time, they didn't know the Soviets had surface to air missiles like this was before U-2s were getting popped out of the sky. Constantly. Oh, this is before Gary. Yeah, good old Gary. BG. Honestly, a cool dude. The U-2 was also a beautiful plane, but then again. Yeah. 
still around today, which I find really cool. Hey, if there's no air defense, a high altitude, long endurance on oh, demand man. camera. It's, OK, so the U2 is used by NASA, which makes it space related, which means we can talk about it, which means I have an episode in mind. Are you kidding? We can talk about the XF8U3, which is. Oh, yeah. My, uh, it's uh, sorry for going on a little tangent, but it's the plane that made the, the Navy ban it from fighting F4s because the Phantom pilots were getting basically morale killed because the FAU would or FAU3 would just run circles around them because <laughs> the thing had like some of the most cockeyed aerodynamics uh, in recording chat for reference. And those lower fins folded on landing. Oh, that one. I love that one. I love how the United States' response to the U-2 sh- incident or the U-2 was shot down or whatever was to build the Blackbird so that wouldn't happen again. And so now it's like they just go back to spying on the Soviets with the better, faster, higher flying plane. And it's just like, yeah, you want to try that one again? No, and that's the thing, though, the just the physics of the Blackbird make it borderline impossible to intercept with anything that could be. I never realized how like old so much of our air fleet is. That's the wonderful thing about avionics, because at our point in time, so much is on sensors and standoff capacity <laughs> that cool. We could, the U.S. could be operating MiG-21s, but with sufficiently advanced avionics we can just jackhammer anything from so far over the horizon that it's not a problem i i I was thinking more of just like we still use the b-52 we still use the c-5 like these are things that were made decades ago and they still work like i mean that's what that's what not having a cold war does to a military so so yeah getting back um yeah so what we were talking about was engine charlie not liking the idea of any rocket program because as he saw it, like, we already have bombers. And so, with Engine Charlie breathing down their necks and unemployment looking more likely by the day, all these rocket scientists had to scramble for ways to make themselves look a lot more useful. And they found it in the International Geophysical Year, or IGY. So have either of you guys ever heard of the IGY? I have no, not. this is new to me. Basically, what it was is it was an 18-month period between uh, July 1957 and December 1958. Yes, I know that's not a, it's more than a year. So and basically it was meant to be a sort of like science Olympics where countries would compete or cooperate on a whole <laughs> bunch of different like earth sciences topics. Oh, no. Earlier on, they had things called international polar years, which were held every around every 50 years to encourage exploration of like the Arctic and Antarctica. But with new rocketry and radio advances in the 50s, the contest expanded from just the polar regions to cover all of Earth and like the atmosphere and into space. And like, despite its competitive framing, like these companies, these countries are competing with each other to meet all of these different like landmarks. The IGY was also meant to break down a bit of the hostility between uh, the Americans and the Soviets. Like once the Cold War heated up, most scientific cooperation between capitalist and communist countries like had broken down completely, like, like they just stopped working together. They didn't even exchange notes or publish in international journals or anymore. But with Stalin having died in 53 and our favorite boy Nikita Khrushchev making uh, moves to thaw tensions a little bit, the IGY was seen as a good way for the East and West to compete scientifically in a sort of friendly way instead of in an arms race way. I asked a slightly less murderous way. Now, 
Why is this important, you may be wondering. How is this glorified science fair going to prevent Engine Charlie from firing every single rocket scientist in America? Crack. Because both the US and USSR had vowed they would launch a small Earth orbiting satellite as their contribution to the IGY. Now, we know that on the Soviet side, Sergei Korolev basically had full ownership of that program. But in the US, the government hadn't actually picked who was going to launch America's first satellite. They just promised someone was going to do it. And, and what this meant was the rockets were suddenly good for more than just weapons. And the Army, Navy and Air Force all raced to revamp their missiles into satellite carriers and win the privilege of launching America's first satellite. The reason they were doing this, like we talked about, this would give uh, Engine Charlie one more reason not to cut them. But it would also open up new sources of funding, money that was becoming very hard to find in Ike's military. I like the dichotomy between how the Soviets wanting rockets was for missiles to attack with. And then the scientists were like, ooh, we can put satellites on these. Yeah. And then the, the Americans like are like, we have rockets for weapons. Ooh, wait, we could put satellites on these. Well, right? just, like, <laughs> which, well if, and for, for the Americans, it was more of a survival thing, which is like, we have three rockets that can carry weapons, but Engine Charlie only wants one. Fuck, I need to find a new thing to use my rocket for. The Army and Air Force both proposed using their IRBM designs and just swapping out the warhead for a satellite. The Navy, however, they wanted to do something different. Their proposal, named Project Vanguard, would be a clean sheet design uh, dedicated to launching satellites and only partially related to their other rockets. Wait, this is the Navy going off track? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I love it and, already. And, okay, we will talk about it. They had a reason. Um, and that reason was that, like, America would have preferred if their rocket was if their rocket for the IGY, which is meant to be this peaceful civilian thing, wasn't military, you know? The way when Sputnik launched, there was that implicit message of like, if we can launch a satellite, we can launch a nuke. We've built the first ballistic missile. Like we've we've done this peaceful thing, but we only did it to prove that we can do it in a dangerous way. We can be peaceful dangerously. Yes. And America, like there was a there was a bias towards not doing that. Like the Navy thought they could get extra points by making this peaceful. So to recap, the Army, Navy, and Air Force were competing over who got ownership of the U.S.'s in, uh, strategic nuclear missiles. They did this with arguments over what rockets were, but also the old-fashioned way of starting their own projects to prove their ideas were better. Because the Eisenhower administration and Engine Charlie were in the middle of a cost-cutting frenzy, the projects are also tried to make themselves look more useful by adding a satellite launch capability, which meant they were also competing to be America's entry in the IGY. Okay. I fucking love it. It just keeps getting more batshit the deeper. Oh, it we gets come. more. Don't worry. I get that is the situation in 1956. A lot of sprawling factions and missiles all competing and backstabbing each other in a conflict that was basically just soldiers having stupid rivalries, but would ultimately decide who owned America's nuclear missiles. And in the mid-1950s, the government made its decision, sending this note to each rocket team. Quote, In regard to the intermediate-range ballistic missiles, operational employment of the land-based intermediate-range ballistic missile um, will be the sole responsibility of the U.S. Air Force. Operational employment of the ship-based intermediate-range ballistic missile system will be the sole responsibility of the Navy. The U.S. Army will not plan at this time for the operational employment of the international-range ballistic missile, any other missiles with ranges beyond 200 miles. So, like, they're they're freezing the army out. Yeah, I, be I bet they totally don't, you know, get back and do some more dumb shit. And it gets better. Immediately after the ruling, the Air Force put out a uh, like a victorious report 
suggesting that the ABMA team, so the Army's team, be shut down, have its rockets turned over to the Air Force, and that its staff be broken up and spread around industry, or just given to the Air Force. They basically tried to poach Werner von Braun and his team. They did an in, they tried to do an interbranch Operation Paperclip. They tried to do basically. an Operation Staple. Yes. And around this same time, the Stewart Committee, the group in charge of selecting the rocket that would fly America's first satellite, picked the Navy and Vanguard as their entry in the International Geophysical Year. So does that all make sense? I know that's a long way to come, but I think it's important to have this historical context to understand Project Vanguard. It's janky, but it makes sense in a weird way. Yeah. Whenever I talk about Vanguard in the next section, you will understand it better for having known about the weird fucked up politics that led to it. Yeah. U.S. government bureaucracy has never made an appearance on this show before and never will again in the future. Please. My man, the U.S. government does no wrong, so I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you can't see how furiously I'm winking into my cell phone camera trying to not. We die. need to start doing this with like, yeah, cameras to really understand the body language and the horror, annoyance and sarcasm that will fly everywhere. The Vanguard rocket. OK, so halfway through the episode, we finally get to talk about Project Vanguard and what it actually was. And I figure, what better way to do that than by talking about a different rocket? Don't, don't worry, it'll, it'll actually help, don't worry. Because if I just rattle off numbers in a vacuum, it won't mean all that much to you guys or the audience. We're going to start off by talking about Vanguard's competition, the Soviet R-7. So ba- basically, we're going to look at them side by side so you guys can see the differences. So- and if this sounds like a setup to shitting on Vanguard by putting it next to a much better rocket, it is. That would never happen, especially after we have just talked about a man who is known for nothing more than ruthlessly guillotining every program he comes in contact with. Yeah, this is just so I can help you understand how bad a rocket Vanguard was. So the earliest launcher based on the R-7 was called the Sputnik launcher, uh, which first flew in 1957 and carried both Sputnik 1 and 2 before being replaced with an upgraded model. This first iteration was 94 feet tall and 34 feet across at its base. Like, for its time, it was a monster. It was cone-shaped. It had five rocket engines across two stages that burned a mix of liquid oxygen and kerosene to produce almost a million pounds of thrust. And it needed all of that thrust because when fully fueled and sitting in its launch cradle, the R-7 weighed 589,000 pounds. Was all the thrust in the first bloody stage? So what happened is the first R7, technically, it didn't have two stages. It had like 1.5 stages. Oh, the uh, because it shed the outer boosters like the, the main piece that goes into space. The center. That was it. There wasn't oh. a second stage on that. Um, they oh, eventually yeah. add that. They eventually add that later on with like the modern Soyuz rockets have a second stage. Oh, so this um, was uh, it launches the it, four... it just it had the center stage and it had side boosters. Yeah, that the, was it. The four blisters on the sides would bop off. OK, so altogether that translated into a total payload to orbit of a little over eleven hundred pounds, which isn't a lot. Um still significant. It, it, oh, yeah, it's still a lot like the upgraded Sputnik version that carried Sputnik three. Uh, brought that up to like 5,000 pounds. The Vanguard rocket, meanwhile, was almost as tall as the R-7 at 72 feet, but it was only four feet across. I checked, and this is roughly the length to width ratio of a pencil. It had three stages that put out a max force of 30,000 pounds, and every stage burned a different kind of fuel. 
The first stage burned plain old uh, liquid oxygen and kerosene. I tap out. Sorry, tap out. Different kinds of fuel. Every single different fucking stage. Yeah. Yeah. You're smoking crack. Actually, no, they were. Continue. No, 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 no. This rocket is just a tower of hats. You will understand how bad this gets as we go. You may have your outbursts now. You may ask questions now, but every question will be answered by me, like talking about how horrible this whole process is. Oh, yeah, I, I made a mistake. I looked up the rocket. I hate it. I hate it so don't, much. Don't. Well, I, OK, if it's just a picture, yeah, you can look it up. It, no, it literally just, looks like a pencil. <laughs> exactly. I, ju- I looked up just a picture, hand on heart. Like found 70, the- 72 feet long, four feet across, like you could basically that like there's a, pictures that's a Dixon there's pictures of like engineers like engineers standing on either side of the rocket and like they could link their hands and just like hug the rocket together so the first stage burned plain old liquid oxygen and kerosene while the third stage was a small ro- solid rocket the second stage which we will talk about in detail burned some incredibly fun and experimental high performance fuel which was also incredibly dangerous as always, with incredible, expensive, and incredibly <laughs> volatile fuels. If no. your fuel, if your fuel gets upset at the presence of nothing, then yeah, yeah the kind of fuel they'll they'll use. Again, we'll talk about this. It just had the JoJo menacing like around it at all times. And Chris, if you want to look in recording chat, other Chris has posted a picture of Vanguard and a Dixit Ticonderoga number two. <laughs> 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 like Herbert wants you to find a difference between these two images. There is not one. Oh, uh, that's that's going in the YouTube slides. Some NASA or some scientist just saw a Dixon Ticonderoga and said, "Yes, <laughs> and no, gentlemen, are, I have an idea. We are not sponsored by them, but they said <laughs> this is going into space." Uh, sir, are you sure this is going? Like he just put the pencil down on a piece of paper and traced it. And, and then, then held it, that up to everybody else. Then <laughs> someone said, God. wait a second, it's got to be a little thicker. OK, give me a second. He just there draws tiny fins at the bottom. Yeah. When fully loaded, Vanguard weighed 22,000 pounds. And with this incredibly advanced and expensive vehicle, you could deliver a satellite to orbit as long as it weighed less than 25 pounds. Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> I am horrifically out of fucking shape. And I can do 25 pound curls all damn day. Yeah, you could almost not launch coup into space. <laughs> yeah. uh, you could launch you could launch three Paisleys with this rocket. No, I that that could be the channel art. Just. It just it's just, just like, fat... yeah, we, we measure we measure payload in our cats using a different cats as that, the measurements that, that might be able to launch a mini. So so whenever it eventually launches and like, yeah, spoiler alert, they do eventually manage to like get satellites into orbit with this thing. It launches a four pound satellite that Khrushchev called the grapefruit. That- it was, it's, literally, it's literally just this, roughly the size and weight of a grapefruit. And it's just screaming out into space, trying to ship post. But meanwhile, the angry yeah, shiny just- ball is still up there. Meanwhile, several tons worth of sat- of Soviet satellite and dead dog are orbiting the Earth. I have dead biomatter in space. What have you to show for <laughs> yeah, your what have, what have you done? I cooked a dog, sir. <laughs> I killed a dog in space. <laughs> yeah, like going going to the IGY, going to the International Geophysical Year, like team and just like like what have you brought to the science fair little nikki it's just like yeah i cooked my dog i put my dog in the microwave here you go get this man a prize get this man a nobel prize 
I was going to say, uh, for, you know, 1 hour 23, they were the first one to kill a dog in space before yeah. U.S. cops. Did the ATF even exist at that point? Oh, wait, shit, sure. this is the start of the ATF rivalry. One of the... Okay, that I, I've said it before, but that needs to be the joke of this podcast. <laughs> that somehow everything comes back to Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev. Nikita Khrushchev started the ATF FBI feud. Good old Nikki. <laughs> ATF KGB. Close he's, he's, the Three he's, the, he's the center. He's the centerpiece of our string board. Yes. <laughs> and I will. I will find. Yeah. If it comes down to it, I will find tenuous connections to bring everything back to Nikita Khrushchev. No matter how tortured. What is and, this like, fucking six degrees to Nikita Khrushchev? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like everybody is related to Genghis Khan if you go back far enough, and then Nikita Khrushchev is. So he's your. Distant cousin, which means that's how that happened. The whole, um, which means he's responsible for anything you did. The Soviet Khanate um, will rise again. Yes. Uh, if oh, uh, if if John Wayne can play Genghis Khan, then Nikita Khrushchev could have done it. I forgot. I've seen that yeah. scuff picture <laughs> precisely once, and I never wanted Hell to yeah. consi- consider it again. Was I decent movie? Um, if you ignore all of the everything. Um, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. So, everything. So America's answer to the R7 produced a 30th of the thrust and could only launch a 40th of the payload, while somehow taking years longer to develop and costing more than twice as much as the Soviet rocket. (laughs) And how Vanguard wound up this way comes down to three main factors. One, the decision to keep the rocket peaceful and and avoid military hardware. Two, the fact almost every part of the rocket was cutting edge and experimental, and three, and I'm hoping that you, uh, other Chris, will especially enjoy this one because I know you work on F-35 parts. The fact that almost every part of the rocket was farmed out to a huge network of contractors and subcontractors. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, great. <laughs> Here it is. Ladies and gentlemen, the patchwork Frankenstein's monster racket. Yeah, everything, have- everything keeps happening. The F-35 happened in the 50s and it was called Vanguard. And it's somehow getting shittier. Uh, yeah, like the book Red Moon Rising um, uses whenever they describe Vanguard, um, Matthew Brzezinski uses the word quasi civilian to describe the project, like which I think was, fits very well because it was run by the Navy. But like the, the design was technically set by the Navy, but everything else, it was farmed out. Everything was subcontracted. And then those contractors could then pick their own subcontractors. We will have it on YouTube. I will send you guys an image, but I made a chart of all of the different companies and like where they sit in the tree. And there's like easily uh, there's a lot of them. there's more than 10, at least like main big companies. There's at least three. Well, there's three stages, three stages, at least three companies. I hate it. Yeah, I hate it so much. So Vanguard, the program, grew out of the Navy's Viking rocket, designed and built by the Glenn L. Martin Company. Um, Now, if you're wondering who these guys are, they're the Martin in Lockheed Martin after the two companies merged in the 90s. And and there was a merger before that to make a company called Martin Marietta. It's uh, there's a long histories to that stuff. Trust me, I know Martin Marietta. I I have. Trust me. I hope you don't know Martin Marietta because Martin Marietta stopped existing uh, probably before you were born. Undiagnosed ADHD and internet connection in the capacity gotcha. to do advanced searches on Google. So like Wikipedia browsing. I will learn the deep secrets. 
Anyway, the Viking was a sounding rocket the Navy had been using since the 40s for high altitude testing, and to have a homegrown design to use once all of the V2s taken during Operation Paperclip ran out, which was a very real concern they had at the time. They wanted to do all of this testing, but they only had so many uh, former Nazi rockets, most of which were hogged by the Army. Same with the scientists. Uh, the plan for Vanguard was to take the Viking rocket, stretch it out by a third, replace the engine with one made by a different company, General Electric. Uh, like General Electric had made this engine for the Army, and the idea was to bolt it onto the bottom of the Martin uh, stage and then bolt two more stages on top to get the satellite into orbit. So like, oh, the, if, if you can, like, we'll have something for uh, people on YouTube, but if you can visualize this properly, the Viking rocket would be the first stage. They would stretch it out, they would replace the engine, and then further stages would be bolted on top. Why would you have harmony between design engineers? In fairness, this is not necessarily a stupid idea. If it worked, they wouldn't really need to design anything new and they could get away with using commercial off-the-shelf parts. Like, this is good engineering. They just had to modify existing parts or take things from other, like, just buy from other companies. And the problem was that it didn't work. And to explain why, I'm going to quote space historian Andrew LePage. Quote, The Navy had assumed that the original Viking development team at Martin would be available for Vanguard. Unknown to the Navy at the time the letter of intent was signed, Martin's Viking team had already been broken up and most of its members were reassigned to work on the development of the Air Force's new Titan ICBM. Since the Titan program had a higher national priority and a much larger and was a much larger contract for Martin than Vanguard, NRL, the, the Navy research lab, had to make do with the experience of their Vanguard group and what remained of the Martin engineering team. Like, none of the dudes who worked on the Viking rocket were available to work on the Vanguard rocket. So that's so that's the first stage. The second stage is where things get really fun. Their original plan was to steal a stage from an Aerobee rocket, which is a different kind of sounding rocket. And again, this is a good idea. The Aerobee is one of the most reliable rockets in history. I need to be clear on that. Over their run, more than a thousand would be launched, and to make matters better, they were very cheap to build. Like this is this is the definition of good off-the-shelf engineering. And Chris is going to get mad when I explain why it didn't work. <laughs> Remember how I said that the uh, the rockets and satellites were designed by committee? Well, they were actually designed by different committees. <laughs> the Naval Research Lab, or NRL, was in charge of the rocket, while the National Academy of Sciences was picked to design the satellite. And they went off and debated what shape the satellite would be, what instruments it would carry, and how big it should be. So their first idea was to make the actual nose cone of the rocket the satellite. And that's what they told, like, that's what the various rocket companies expected and designed for. Almost a year into the project, they changed their mind, deciding that the satellite had to be a sphere 51 centimeters in diameter. And they did not communicate this fact to the rocket teams. No! <laughs> Leading no. one Martin engineer to shout, quote, What? You want to put a ball in that rocket? Why the hell didn't someone tell us this? Put on my language! No, no. No, it happened. It, no, no, you can't it, deny not, this. Not that. It's I'm, I'm the rage is bottled down. It's it's being compacted into the hate ball. <laughs> oh god, are you kidding me? Though? Oh, just just how deny it. This how, is <laughs> how many different committees? Three, four? Two committees designed the rocket and the satellite. Like one one for each. Oh, nice. So they probably but they had like these weird communication things. So like the team that designed the satellite had to communicate it to the Navy, which then had to propagate it out to all the companies. 
And like somewhere along that chain, they just didn't. So even after they had picked the new satellite design, all of the rocket companies were still assuming it was the old thing. This redesign basically had butterfly effects through the entire project, but the biggest change was on the second stage because the satellite was now wider than the Aero B rocket, which meant they couldn't use it. <laughs> so like the, the rocket, they, the satellite they pick was like 51 centimeters in diameter and the Aero B rocket is only 38. <laughs> I mean, that's, it, a, that's the thing, though. We've seen that play out before and like, uh, what's it called? What's the current U.S. heavy lift rocket Titan? It can, it can work, but this is the, the 1950s. Like they have not figured this out. Yet. Yeah, like they, and they, they did. They did not want to bolt something huge on the end of their rocket. And it actually gets better instead of finding another design to modify or just stacking a bunch of aerobies together in a cluster, which were both options they looked at. They went with option C, design an entirely new second stage rocket from scratch and make it the most high tech cutting edge rocket ever known to man. They go from like the definition of good engineering, consumer off the shelf, using a proven, tested, cheap design to just like, yeah, let's just let's just make something new. And let's make it as experimental as possible. Aerojet, the company that made the Aerobee, honestly wasn't too mad about this change. Even if they'd wasted time modifying the Aerobee, they correctly realized that words like high tech and super advanced basically translated to blank check. So with a like a blank slate and all the money they could ask for, the designers at, Aero, at Aerojet sat down, got their slide rules out, and over-engineered the shit out of Vanguard's second stage. Beautiful. So the first thing to note was the engine. The AJ-10-37 had great performance for its time. It's actually like versions of it are still used today or were used until 2018. Like it is a it's an actual top-notch engine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like it had great performance for its time, but crucially, it was the first rocket engine in the world with a gimbaled nozzle. Now, for those of you who don't oh. know, gimbling basically means being able to pivot your rocket engine's nozzle to change the direction of thrust like as a way to actually aim the rocket. Like it's it's an incredible way to control your rocket during flight. Like nowadays, it is the default way to control a rocket. Before this, the only control methods people could use to aim a rocket was to put heat resistant fins on the inside of the nozzle like the V2 or to bolt tiny steering thrusters to the side like the R7. Notice those are the vernier thrusters, correct? Yes. And and again, like a lot of things in Vanguard, this is a good idea. But in the mid 50s, it was still unproven and unreliable. And that's not even getting to the fuel because in a space flight first, this engine burned probably my two favorite chemicals in the world. <gasps> it's unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine and white fuming nitric acid. <gasps> yes! We made it to the angry fuel. It's the shit. Uh, I'll, edit, I'll edit that in. It's the shit. I don't want to copy Lions Led by Donkeys too much, though. No. <laughs> Still, I'm, I think it's appropriate. I'm, I, I love them to death, but at the same time, we need that because fucking. They don't own that. This is, no, they. We get the air horn too. We both watch that podcast. Yeah, air horn's public yeah. domain, Chris. Yeah. No, I, I you know. You patent the air horn. I know, but using it as a Twitch drop started somewhere. But no, either yeah. way, we finally hit it. We made it. Fucking and a nitric acid yeah. coming together uh. as God in did not intend in the slightest. <laughs> no, they do not like being in contact with each other. I wonder, uh, hey, have you ever heard of the term hypergolic? We're going to talk about that, uh, actually. 
So uh, they don't like being in contact with each other. They're both incredibly volatile, so they have to have a restraining order and live two habitation units <laughs> apart from one another. So, so yeah, we are we are finally taking a little dip into the world of horrible rocket fuels, and we will definitely be doing a lot more episodes that, on this and giving safe? them. No, probably not. Um, Anything is safe with enough administrative and engineering controls, but no, yeah. that is really like, not. We just pull. We'll just pull in Adele, and yeah, like, like and like I said, we are definitely going to give these the time they deserve. This is not going to be the only time we talk about weird rocket fuels. Ah, yes, Nolan, um, the protein into smear oh, champion the, of the year, the man, the myth, the legend, the, the melter, the devil's venom. Um, for now, for now, I'm going to start off with a very quick chemistry lesson. So rockets work by combustion, which just means burning stuff. And to make combustion happen, you need two things. You need a fuel and an oxidizer. On Earth, we get our oxidizer from the oxygen that's all around us in the air. So an example of a combustion would be a campfire. The wood is the fuel and the air provides the oxygen. But rocket engines need to be able to work in space and there's no oxygen floating around in the vacuum. So they have to carry their own oxidizer with them. Uh, they normally have a fuel tank and an oxidizer tank and those get mixed together in the combustion chamber of the rocket engine. And that's how most rocket engines work. But you can make it a bit more exciting if you're willing to risk a horrible death. See, the vanilla rocket fuel options are generally either hydrogen or kerosene mixed with liquid oxygen. This has good performance and they're sort of easy to store and they're pretty safe, all things considered. But that's vanilla shit. We're here for the exotic stuff that'll melt your bones. The only drawback to those kind of fuels is they need to be lit on fire before they'll actually be burned. Like if you just mix them together, nothing happens. And that's where a very exciting option comes in. When two chemicals ignite just by making contact with no extra energy or machinery, they are said to be hypergolic. And this is a very valuable thing for a rocket because lighting a rocket engine, especially in the vacuum of space, is very hard. And the equipment to do it, like even today, often has a lot of drawbacks. Like. Sometimes they can only be relit a, a certain number of times. Sometimes they need to like fire a little like pellet of catalyst into the, the stream and they only have so many of those. Regardless, they're complex, they're, uh, they can be unreliable and they take up weight. So if you can get rid of that by using a hypergolic fuel, that tends to be valuable. And it has knock on effects of that mechanism you've just erased can now be used for either more fuel or more payload. Right. Better, to make it even better, hypergolic fuels tend to have very good performance, like they're good rocket fuels. So with all these pros, they have to have a con or two, right? Listener, oh, no. if you couldn't guess already, hypergolic fuels tend to be incredibly dangerous. Nowadays, fuels, fuels like hydrazine and nitric acid are sort of known quantities, but still very dangerous. Like people, um, the books I've sourced referred to them as being like domesticated these days. But this is the mid 1950s. And no one knew how these things worked or how to store them or how to work with them. Like they did not have OSHA back then. And this was also the period where like rocket scientists like astronauts would just prank each other. Oh, no. I'm 90 percent. If you were working with this fuel and you saw a colleague's like coffee mug just sitting on a desk, you'd pour nitric acid in it just to see what happens. Oh, God. Yeah. Like the only reason and this is safety standpoint, I'm sorry for going off. But the only reason stuff like that can safely be used is proper administrative and engineering controls and throwing that out the window because, well, this yeah. is the fucking 50s, baby. And we're in a rush, goddammit. Oh, what happens if I spill a little on the floor and I just, you know, wake up in, just in a graveyard somewhere? 
So I'm going to start off with nitric acid, the oxidizer for Vanguard's second stage, by quoting from the book Ignition by John D. Clark. And this, this book, Ignition, is basically the Bible of rocket fuels. We will definitely, like, whenever we talk about rocket fuels, I will be quoting sourcing primarily from this book. Uh, also, John D. Clark was just a legend. I need to read this book myself properly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's it's actually like I highly recommend it. I will have it posted um, in the show links as well. I recommend reading it just because it's very funny. Like uh, John Clark, as he, he is a very fun writer, he's constantly sarcastic. He makes jokes the entire time. Also, a quick thing for this quote, for some parts, he's talking about red fuming nitric acid, which is related to white fuming nitric acid. But again, all of the points here still apply to white. Quote, the RFNA of 1945 was hated by everybody who had anything to do with it, with a pure and abiding hatred, and with reason. In the first place, it was fantastically corrosive. If you kept it in an aluminum drum, apparently nothing uh, in particular happened, as long as the weather was warm. But when it cooled down, a slimy, gelatinous white precipitate uh, would appear and settle slowly to the bottom of the drum. This sludge was just sticky enough to plug up the injector of the motor when you tried to fire it. So the acid couldn't be kept indefinitely in a missile tank, or there wouldn't be any tank left. It had to be loaded just before firing, which meant handling it in the field. This is emphatically not fun. And RFNA attacks skin and flesh with the avidity of a school of piranhas. One drop of it on my arm gave me a scar which I still bear more than 15 years later. And it had another trick up its sleeve. For years, people had noted that a standing drum of acid slowly built up pressure and had to be vented periodically. But they assumed that this pressure was a byproduct of drum corrosion and didn't think much of it. Uh, but then, around the beginning of 1950, they began to get suspicious. They put WFNA in glass containers and in the dark to prevent any photochemical reaction from complicating the results, and found, to their dismay, that the pressure buildup was even faster than in an aluminum drum. Nitric acid, or WFNA at least, was inherently unstable and would decompose spontaneously, all by itself. This was a revolting situation. So this stuff is just this stuff is just horrible <laughs> to work with. No, I think it goes a step beyond that. This stuff it simply does not want to exist. It's yeah, it's it's playing God, except instead of like biology and like mutating animals. It's like this is this is chemistry. It's thank God at a more fundamental. Oh, how unstable can we make our molecules? <laughs> oh, dude, just just wait till we talk about monopropellants. Like they're a long molecule that looks kind of like a U shape. And one end of that U is an oxidizer and one end is a fuel. And they can like they can meet and burn. So like they're fuels that can literally just burn themselves. Well, yeah, I mean, uh. it all has to do with. With volatility and 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 the fun metric. Ah, uh, yes, the fun metric. That's what the one thing that we need to consider that weapons chemists have to keep in mind when they're creating new compounds. You need to consider how fun your awfully caustic, acidic, like dude. And again, I keep saying it. It gets upset. At the presence of nothing, like I would say, like oh yeah, it, it'll 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 get upset and light on fire after exposure to oxygen. But like this doesn't even need that. No, the, the, this, the, the, this will the, this will the, explode the, if the, you the, like look at the it. The compound funny. you just mentioned is is it if you look at it funny. If it exists in a container with itself, it will just spontaneously light <laughs> yeah. on fire. But at the it same time, it is a good rocket fuel still because yep. guess what? It has all that energy. And yeah, it will the release more unstable the fuel, the better the bang. Yeah, 
high risk, high reward. I mean, look at explosives. Like I, like I just said, there's a significant overlap. And yeah, and like the like explosives have been highly domesticated. Oh, uh, I, I keep using the word domesticated because that's what John Clark uses in his book, where he's saying like they haven't actually been rendered any safer. People just know how to not die horribly, and the only way they learned how to not die horribly was learning the hard way because of all of the people who died horribly and vanguard doesn't get that bad but slight spoiler for the next episode a dude's face does melt off he didn't need it anyways he was unworthy to handle god's holy (laughs) chemicals it wasn't his fault in in all fairness it was not his fault so that is the oxidizer white fuming nitric acid unsymmetrical dimethylhydrazine or udmh the fuel they picked to go along with the nitric acid is not quite as horrible but it's definitely not pleasant. Working with it normally means a big protective suit and a lot of caution because it's hypergolic with a lot of oxidizers, not just nitric acid. It burns very hard. It is incredibly hard to put out. And if that wasn't enough, it's also incredibly carcinogenic. I was going to bring that up. <laughs> if you breathe it in and you don't catch fire, you're you're just screwed. Your lungs will mutate and grow new yeah. flesh. No, I... There's uh so funny enough, I actually work with a chemical that oh, no. uh it has a very funny warning tag on it and that it just flat out doesn't say no, this may harm you. It's this will cause central nervous This will. This will cause central nervous system damage. Okay. You wanna know what the stupidest thing is? It is just a clear paint overcoat for markings. That's it. Just yes, it will cause you cancer. Your oh, so this, this isn't even like this is just like, oh, yeah, my my lacquer uh, makes tumors. No, not just tumors. It makes tumors on the bottom parts of the body that go burr. <laughs> Note to self, do not like touch an F-35 at any point. I'm going to tell my friends oh, no, it, in uh, the uh, in the RCAF not to touch the F-35. Oh, no, it's the base components. Once it's together and it off gases for a couple days, it's fine. It's uh, what's all what, and, so and, and it is off gassing in your office. It's off gassing in a box for the most part. Okay, yeah, a so, lot of it goes into the hood. So the only thing that I can immediately think of is that it's farting in the box. Hey, the box leaves my building and Lockheed knows what it is. Anyway, to get us back to Vanguard, this was the first time UDMH and WFNA would be used for an orbital rocket. The engineers at Aerojet definitely had the most experience with hypergolics of anyone at the time. But this still basically meant no one knew what they were doing. Like the most experienced person in this field was still like had no experience at all. The risks they knew about were huge and like they couldn't even know about all of the unknown risks. Also, to bring bureaucracy back into it, Aerojet was not designing the whole second stage. The Navy contracted out the guidance and control system to Honeywell, which created another layer of communication for things to get mixed up in. Shout out to Honeywell! I do suffer them too. I really love those like contractors that it's like, oh yeah, we make these fun innocuous things for the civic realm. And it's like, oh, we also make fucking missiles that blow people up. My first job, (laughs) one of my first jobs was, oh yeah, we knew machine parts for Pratt & Whitney, variants across the globe, some GE. Oh, we also do gyroscope housings that go into some things that are less than savory. Here you go someone at Raytheon just shows up and they've got like this huge grin plastered on their face. All you shows we got a lot of uh, fun business or we were actually able to get uh, ahead on our business when a certain company went on strike. 
Oh no. Yeah, they okay. they're not producing parts that we can actually catch up on our contract. <laughs> and we just said fuck yes. So if you thought things were bad already, listener, I haven't even gotten to Vanguard's final stage yet. Vanguard's third stage was designed as a small solid rocket booster that would give the satellite just its final kick into orbit. Now that sounds simple enough, right? It just had to be a glorified firework. But here's the problem. The third stage was constrained by the previous first two stages, the weight of the payload and its own maximum weight. Like it was the lowest priority in the in the stack of, I guess, priorities. Basically, the first and second stages were allowed some leeway with their performance since any slack could be picked up by the next stage up. Uh, the third stage did not get that luxury. So like the first stage, they would Martin would build their stage and they can say, oh, we'll get payload X to altitude Y. And then Aerojet would take their second stage and say, oh, we can get the payload to altitude Z. And then with the third stage, they couldn't tell the Navy like, oh, we can only get X amount so high. Like they had to get the payload to orbit. They did not have any leeway, any slack. The problem was with that, no solid rocket in existence could match the stupid performance requirements the Navy had come up with, which meant whoever built the thing would have to completely revolutionize solid rocket boosters. Like, because the other stages underperformed, they had to overperform. Now, the Navy was not stupid. They knew this was a big ask and a big risk, and they knew that whatever company they hired would need a load of R&D funding. And in true military fashion, they figured the best way to mitigate these risks was to pay two companies to build competing rockets and then just pick the best. The Grand Central Rocket Company wound up competing against Hercules Powder Company, uh, Grand Central taking a more conservative approach while Hercules built the X-248, which could launch bigger payloads because instead of being made of sturdy metal, they made it out of fiberglass. What? Yeah, <laughs> the, the shell of this rocket was made of fiberglass to save weight. Now, <sighs> if you guys were the Navy, which one would you pick? Fiberglass is a pretty shitty material, depending on, you know, the material science behind it. But considering time and date, 1950. I, I would not be going with that because esoteric materials like proper reinforced plastics aren't a thing just yet. And I'm going to guess that was the one chosen. You'd go with the conservative approach of the uh, Grand Central Rocket Company. I would, but I know what's going to be chosen because surprise, surprise, this is a show. Which that, one's cheaper? This is a show that causes me Neither. pain. These are OK. <laughs> They're both very expensive. And that is why I'm going to like other Chris, you are not technically you're technically correct and technically wrong because the Navy picked both. <laughs> oh, they did the army thing. Nice. Yeah, they, they picked both and paid for both. Honey, this thing's really expensive. And so is this one. Okay, let's get both. Yeah, so so early flights went up with the Grand Central Booster and later ones went up with the X-248. As you can see, what started off as a nice, clean program to use existing rockets and off-the-shelf parts to launch a modest satellite quickly turned into a sci-fi technology demonstrator where basically every part was revolutionary and custom-built. This is bad engineering. Like, I don't want to pretend that I'm some kind of ar engineering arbiter, but anyone could see that this is not how you build, like, anything, let alone a space rocket. And, and they knew this back then. One of the Navy engineers, Jim Bridger, later wrote, quote, For all practical purposes, the Vanguard vehicle was new, new from stem to stern. More to the point, it was an awful high state-of-the-art vehicle, especially the second-stage rocket. 
In the nature of things, the business of developing the vehicle and getting the bugs out so it would work was fraught with difficulties. And as you can imagine, hiring more than a dozen defense contractors to work on a super high-tech space rocket, making them restart every few years because of redesigns, and making a couple of them actively compete with each other drove costs through the fucking roof. I have, I'm sorry, but I have a feeling that, you know, any time this project restarted, it doesn't matter where our, you know, best friend Engine Charlie is. He just immediately starts sweating and getting angsty. Hold that thought. Oh, please. Hold that thought. By the time Sputnik 1 launched for an estimated cost of $50 million, Project Vanguard cost more than $110 million, and that price was still rising fast. It got bad enough that Engine Charlie pulled all Pentagon funding from the satellite project, and Vanguard had to scramble to find new people to pay for their rocket. As a fun fact, the group they eventually convinced to cover their tab was the CIA. Oh no! Does it... <laughs> Wait a sec. Okay, so number one, uh, you can delete this. I have the gif of the cat getting pet just to keep me calm on my other screen. But does do I honestly fucking smell the start of the fucking keyhole program in this? I. What is the keyhole program? Um, oh, is this the spy satellite thing? This is uh, what's called Enroll, the one organization that no one talks about. I was about, about to comment. That of course the CIA would fund this. They want to spy no, sell it. No, no, no. So, so, the, so they want to put a camera happened, in like space. We, we will, we will get into this with later episodes. The CIA was kind of covered, like playing all sides because the Air Force already had a spy satellite program. Like basically, there was a similar kind of contest for who would get control of spy satellites, and the Air Force won over the CIA. And the CIA was like horrified because the Air Force public. They, they basically they published in magazines reports of their spy satellite project, which is just like, yeah, oh, like let's go to National Geographic and tell them about our cool project, which to the CIA is they're sitting there like, that is not how you do spy stuff. You don't tell people about your spy stuff. But no, so I so so they started yeah. shopping around. They realized Vanguard. Yeah, they, they wanted to get us an actual secret spy satellite. So they went to Vanguard like, hey, maybe these guys know what they're doing. But no, I, I, I have to say it a little more like the National Reconnaissance Office. If you want to talk about a group of shady motherfuckers that get stuff done, and I do mean shady, like they will, they have eyes everywhere, at least in space. Yeah. They are the, they are suspect number, hi Paisley. They are yeah, suspect Paisley. one, at least for me in anything space reconnaissance related. And they, they know what they're doing. And somehow, despite the ballooning costs, Vanguard was actually chronically underfunded, which, as you can guess, hurt manufacturing quality. Quote, throughout the spiraling cost overruns, the schedules for co uh, component parts slipped and assembled test vehicles, the prototypes, were often delivered late and in such shoddy condition that Dan Mazur, uh, the Vanguard project manager, demanded on one occasion that the entire rocket be sent back to Martin piece by rotten piece. There were moisture problems, poorly located pressure li indicator lines, unsoldered wire connections, corroded and leaky fittings, and badly fitted plugs. The GE engine had to be returned because of wholesale system contamination. Dirt and metal filings were found in the fuel lines, cracks appeared in the propellant tanks, batteries failed, rubber wind spoilers attached to the exterior rocket casings fell off, the gyroscopes were off kilter, the hydraulic oil resource was plugged, and aluminum chips were found in the hydrogen peroxide gas generating system. Um, I know that is a lot I just threw at you. Safe to say, 
None of that is good. On top of funding problems, scheduling problems, and quality problems, they also had to deal with good old office politics. That's because a lot of the companies they hired, even the ones that they didn't assign to compete with each other, were rivals and did not work well together. This is a problem because as we talked about, every stage of Vanguard was made by at least two companies that needed to be in contact to talk about, like, all of the design changes that happened. It actually got to a point where sometimes the Navy would have to play middleman, like these people would do this, like, Mar like uh, Martin engineers would go like, Navy, tell tell GE that we're making this change. And then GE would go like, um, Navy, tell Martin that we're making this change. And like they're working in the same building. <laughs> Beautiful. This attitude was also extended to the Navy. At one point, Martin execs got so annoyed with them that they denied Navy engineers parking at their Baltimore lab. <laughs> Uh, it's just the most petty shit. It's just like, I, yeah, sorry, your parking pass has expired. Get out. No, it's that's I see. Who we you, towed your truck. I see who you work for. You fucking leave. <laughs> but I'm here for the project. No, like they, they still like they, the, the Navy guys worked with them. Like they still had to be there. They weren't they, just visiting. No, they had to work. They just, they just got so annoyed that they were just like, yeah, employees only get out. Like you park somewhere else, park across uh, the street. No, they had to uh, they had to work with them in air quotes. Now, despite all of that, Vanguard was able to launch three successful test rockets in 1957. TV0, TV1 and TV2. Uh, the TV, by the way, stands for test vehicle. What they did, what they did is they sort of added complexity and pieces with each with with each launch. TV Zero was just a normal Viking rocket. TV One was a Viking rocket with Vanguard's third stage bolted on top. And TV Two was the first rocket to actually look like how Vanguard was supposed to look. Even then, TV Two's second and third stages were completely inert and meant only to test how well the first stage would perform. They did have another test launch planned, but everything was still incredibly tight. Funding, scheduling, people, all of it. Quote, when the International Geophysical Year opened in the summer of 1957, Vanguard was nowhere near ready. We're never going to make it in time, Milt Rosen, the program's intense second-in-command, despondently told his boss, John Hagen, the project's overall coordinator. Never mind, said Hagen, a gentle, pipe-smoking astronomer who was famous for never once losing his temper during Vanguard's de uh, developmental ordeals. We are not in a race with the Russians. Project Vanguard and the Sputnik Panic. Little did he know, he was in a race with the Russians. Or maybe he wasn't, but his country was. Fucking shocker. Sputnik 1 launched in October of 1957, and Sputnik 2 launched a month later in November. Together, the two satellites set off in a, an international political firestorm, with everyone suddenly viewing the USSR as a proper superpower, and the US freaking out because it was under threat and falling behind. I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time covering this since we already talked about it in detail during our Sputnik episodes. Um, if you go, if you want to learn more, uh, go back and listen to those. Anyway, as Sputnik panic went into full swing, most of the blame landed on U.S. President uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower and his administration. The public media, opposition, and even politicians in his own party demanded to know how this all happened, how the Soviets had managed to get ahead of America, and how Eisenhower allowed them to take the lead in the new and crucial field of rocketry. To be clear, like, rocketry was not new or crucial. This was just the narrative of the time, the Sputnik panic. Ah oh, yes, some good old-fashioned Russophobia at play. Yeah. And I do mean old-fashioned. Uh, or just, someone else is better than us at a thing. 
Mr. President, I am angry. We how dare they? <laughs> we angry. Fix American exceptionalism, like fully internalized as just like you did a thing before I did. Fuck you. Committees and investigations were started by politicians like LBJ as a way to attack the president, while Richard Nixon, Ike's VP, used the opportunity to try and like claw his way closer to power. Not coincidentally, these two guys who exploited this the most would later on become presidents themselves. Long story short, things were bad and the United States needed a win fast. And as luck would have it, Vanguard was due to have its fourth test launch, TV3, in December. Now, TV3 was not meant to be a real orbital launch. It was meant to be the first test where all of the stages would actually be fired. It was a dry run for the real launch they would try in March of 1958. TV3 was planned to carry a four-pound satellite, but if it made it to orbit, it would be, in the words of John Hagen, a bonus. Like, this is a dry run. And on top of that, because it's a dry run, it's also meant to be kept quiet because test launches fail all the time and you don't want that to be bad publicity. But that didn't matter to White House Press Secretary James Haggerty when he leaked the date of the test launch to the media. <laughs> now, to be fair, he did say that it was just a test launch, but A, he knew exactly what he was doing, and B, the media did not care. To them, TV3 was being set up as America's official answer to the two Sputnik satellites, and that's what they reported. Like, this was big news. People got really hyped over this. Everyone except the engineers at Project Vanguard, because no one had told them until they heard it on the radio. <laughs> huh. Vanguard TV3, a test rocket that might only reach orbit as a bonus, had become, in the words of one engineer, the wettest dry run in history. And... Next episode, we'll tell you exactly how well that goes for them. So what you're telling me is, hey, guys, we're fitting the schedule. Opposition did fucking what? This is um like Ike's White House. Ike's administration is basically like, hey, Vanguard, you're going to do another one of your cool little test launches soon. All right. All right. That's neat. Um, Do you mind if a thousand reporters show up and watch? We kind of told them this would be a big deal. Well, probably the day before. We know you guys will succeed. We told them you would. No pressure, right? See you tomorrow. <laughs> no pressure. Exactly. No pressure. Kisses. Yeah, and, like these guys. Yeah. Again, they found out on the radio. No one told them. Suddenly, like John Hagen, this guy who was saying, like, we are not in a race with the Russians, starts getting phone calls from reporters like, hey, when are you going to beat the Russians? You're going to beat the Russians in December, right? I heard December. December? Yeah, they said December. Yeah, it's it, it rules. I love it. Um, oh, God. I don't like you might like it. I fucking don't. It's no, it, it rules in the same way that any bad thing rules. I was you know, say, Where, like, considering you have you have a program that like started off cool. It used to be like consumer off the shelf. And then it slowly morphs into everything custom. Bes every, everything like, bespoke. It's the engineering triangle where, you know, you pick two and you can't have the third, except they managed to pick none of them. It's not cheap. It's not fast. Well, they find a fourth and, axis. Yeah, exactly. They go up from the center of the triangle. The up is just pain. Yeah. And even then, like, this was not a good program, but they did make it work. You know, they did manage to wrangle three test, like successful test launches out of this thing. <laughs> Somehow. Despite the fact, like, and and their costs were going crazy. They they costed 110 million 
by the time Sputnik they launched. They still did it. And they still did not have enough money because 110 million is not enough to keep all of the defense contractors in the U.S. happy. Because like, they con- wanted more. Their contractors, not state-owned entities. Exactly. And and the state-owned entities that they did have uh, made things worse by just like halfway through, like the satellite redesign. I love that. I love that halfway through, you're just like, yeah, we changed our mind. It needs to be a circle now. And like, there was no reason it had to be a circle. Like the satellite was going to beep. That's it. It did not have instrumentation in it. It was going to beep in English, though. That's Cyrillic. Beeping, a beeping cone and a beeping sphere. I, I can't tell the difference. Uh, you can't, but uh, are you a connoisseur of weird space shapes? Maybe not. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, maybe it was also like, uh, well, the Soviets <laughs> launched a sphere. So let's let's show them. Let's launch another sphere. Ours will weigh, I don't know, one sixth as much. Our batteries are much better, but they're going to burn out in a month. It only yeah. needs to be for a month before it gets memory old. And as we'll talk about next time, uh, the satellites for Project Vanguard were actually the first satellites to have solar panels. That actually so that is a that is a plus. No, that that makes up for the lower weight because your theoretical yeah. max. Yes, yeah, Sputnik was largely battery. So that is part one of our episode on Project Vanguard, America's response to uh, Sputnik. And yeah, next time we're going to talk about the launch of Test Vehicle 3 and all of the horrible shit that comes after that in an episode that reporters at the time and I will be naming Kaputnik. Thank you for listening to Failure to Launch. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review or tell a friend. Everything helps. If you want to follow us, contact us, or suggest a topic, you can email us at launchfailurepodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at launch underscore failure. Failure to Launch is hosted on Anchor, and we post on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We also post our episodes with visual aids on YouTube at Failure to Launch. All music was provided by DJ Danarchy.